Your source for community, Muskoka-made talk shows are on Muskoka Magazine, The Bay 88.7. Hey, this is Dr. Shervin. Muskoka Magazine is brought to you by Dairy Lane Dental, keeping Muskoka smiling for over 30 years. Please visit DairyLaneDental.com. This is Muskoka Drawdown. Welcome to Muskoka Drawdown. I'm your host, Frank Young. I'm here on behalf of CAM, Climate Action Muskoka. Drawdown is a future point in time when levels of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere stop climbing and start to steadily decline. This is the point when we begin the process of stopping future climate change and, and averting potentially catastrophic warming. Visit the CAM website, sign up for the free weekly newsletter so you can stay informed and up to date on climate change issues locally, nationally, and internationally. Today, my guest is Jennifer Jennifer Alexis. She's been working on the front line of sustainable development and climate adaptation for 30 years. She holds a degree in environmental studies and a minor in political science. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. So first of all, I'm going to take issue with adaptation to climate change rather than stopping climate change. What do you got to say about that? (laughs) Well, um, I think that stopping climate change is a critically important thing for us to do. And certainly bringing down the greenhouse gases to a survivable degree um, is a, a necessary ambition. However, the achievability of being able to survive what is in the cards for us, regardless of what we do, is something that we really need to be cognizant of. And the threats that will be um, will be challenging our communities and things that we have to face are coming whether we prepare or not. Are, are you okay with the timeline that uh, the world is sort of set to 2050 by carbon neutrality? Is that okay with you, or do you think that's no, too late? No, I think that's way too late. It was way too late twenty years ago. Um, and even though um, you know there are there are model forecasts, uh, the IPCC has done its very best uh, to generate a global consensus on the science around climate change. I think. Uh, a lot of the specialists in the field are concerned and preparing for a, a much more grave uh, future for us of eight degrees or more even. I was, there was something on, came over Facebook and it was someone from Australia, some yeah. professor, and he said uh, we're, uh, the amount of um, forest lost in the Amazon is reaching a tipping point and the Greenland ice sheet and the Antarctic ice sheet are beyond tipping points. Yes. So, um, and no matter what we do now, will not stop massive uh, climate change. Yes. Uh, that is extremely desperate. We had, a, we had a chance, like you said, 20 years ago, or it should have been 40 or 50. 40, 50 years ago. But now it's, we're playing catch up. So, yeah. in, in effect, you are correct. Adaptation is the only option left at this point. Well, I don't think it's the only option left um, because we definitely have to bring down the greenhouse gases. And um, for however we are able to, um, find a way to survive uh, our future, we need to look longer than 20 or 30 years ahead. So um, capping the greenhouse gases um, can help to slow down the impacts, we hope. Um, but I think 
issues like the changes in the Greenland ice sheets and 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 ultimately the impact that's going to have on the Gulf Stream um, and migration of fish and the wildlife in the oceans in particular uh, all of these things are, are are kind of like a ball in play already so um, for particularly in my experience and the work that I've done in a small island developing state kind of a context um, the poor and and vulnerable communities of the world have contributed the least to the uh, crisis that's facing us now, but yeah. they are the ones that are feeling the impacts first. No kidding. Um, you yeah. work with young people a fair mm-hmm. bit. Uh, how do you talk to young people now? Do you like apologize and grovel that us adults have made a mess of things and we're ditching them with the problem to fix it up? <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't. Um, I think that catastrophizing with the youth uh, is is a dangerous um, a dangerous approach. I think that young people have been faced with a lot of mental health um, things that are going to challenge mental health, and um, and a catastrophic outlook is not going to help that. That doesn't mean that denial is equally healthy. And I often um, get criticized by people who feel that we should be protecting and shielding young people from this. But the truth of the matter is, young people have access to all the information we have access to. And um, denying it or uh, minimizing the seriousness of it, I think, does them a disservice. But that doesn't mean that uh, having a difficult mountain to climb means that there isn't hope. You just have to prepare for the mountain. And and if we prepare, and we have the capacity, the know-how, and the ingenuity to prepare, um, we can make the um, the future much more livable. You you say you've worked on a lot of projects. Give us mm-hmm. a, a little uh, or a little example of the types of things you've been doing. Okay, um, I uh, I specialize in sustainable development, um, but sustainable development involves economy, society, and environment. So the programming that I've been involved with spans all of those different areas. So some of the work I've done has involved um, the protection of endangered species. That was um, significantly more important to me earlier in my career. And then as the problems um, expanded and I had an opportunity to work overseas, I got involved in poverty alleviation programming and designing projects, in particular in project design, um, when foreign aid or UN money is, is moving around the world, um, it's really important not just to secure the funds that are needed for climate adaptation, but you have to have well-developed programs that will meet the needs of the poor. So it can be, uh, for example, a project I worked on with the Global Environment Facility. Um, we were looking at the uh, sixth nat- national contribution um, to the, from the GEF to um, a, a Caribbean island. And we worked with local farmers and women and community members to identify what the traditional modes of production were, what the consumption demands were, what the income levels were, as well as then what was happening at the biological level. So we would be doing um, things like making sure that we had allocated money for appropriate species inventories, um, looking at sustainable technology transfer so that if farmers were trying to combat pradial larceny with people who say are 
stealing um, agricultural product from fields. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, there were there were yeah <laughs> there were ways of of monitoring um, properties, say using drones and stuff, and that drone technology could be used and so uh, other measuring technology could be used to. Uh, keep track of saltwater encroachment on coastal zones, um, evaluating whether or not groundwater is being drawn from appropriate places. Um, We we talk about, uh, we've heard about for years, uh, fair trade as opposed to free trade, whatever. But fair trade, most people, a lot of people uh, buy fair trade coffee and there's other bananas are fair trade. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you know, is climate change factored into fair trade at all? I think it should be. I've never heard that it has been. Yeah. um, Oh, well, I am very supportive of sustainable certification programs because um, sustainable certification programs do provide a standard and offer a reassurance to the consumers um, that they're getting a product that is at least somewhat better than what what else can be found on the shelves. The difficulty, however, is that there are financial barriers for participation in these uh, programs. So uh, I had worked on um, the rebranding of um, Grenada um, as a sustainable destination, tourism destination. Mm-hmm. And we were looking at eco-certifications as an opportunity to reinforce um, the sustainable branding. And what we found was particularly in the tourism sector was there's a lot of costs associated with the membership of uh, the the various different um, certifications and and a lot of administration for uh, meeting the requirements, which can become a cost barrier, particularly for the small and medium-sized enterprises. And one of the concerns that I have is that a lot of the things that we are trying to institute um, as ad- adaptive measures or as preventative measures or even as an opportunity to level up um, are very much targeted at um, cohorts of people who are resource rich and the resource poor worldwide um, are left on the outside of that conversation. You you, you mentioned you want to help uh, Grenada and other countries with mm-hmm. tourism, but is tourism not all fossil fuel based and is it not uh, part of the problem rather than the solution? I would yes, <laughs> it certainly is. There's a big carbon footprint um, for for travel. Um, I think that in in the case of Grenada, for example, the island had been branded as the Isle of Spice, which was a mercantile brand from back in the slave trading days when spices were brought to Europe. And um, the country rebranded as Pure Grenada. We use the word pure to identify. Um, opportunities to obviously introduce sustainability and stuff. But uh, in order to offset the carbon impact, what we attempted to do was to establish um, carbon neutral hotels. So we raised money um, through the Caribbean Development Bank uh, and installed uh, hybrid systems, solar and wind systems in hotels so that the hotels themselves actually had a net positive, had the capacity to have a net positive contribution to the grid. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a small island, many, many small islands actually are still running on diesel generators, mm-hmm. like the whole country. Well, so that's an issue with yeah. First Nations community in Northern Canada exactly. as well. And they're starting, well, they're, they're running grids up to the communities in Northern Ontario, and some are putting up some solar, like in Yukon, there's, um, some, there's some solar installs that's helping as well. Um, yeah. When we do fly, uh, I buy um, carbon offsets. Do you think yes. carbon offsets are a good idea? Are they a scam? Or um, Carbon offsets have the potential to be a really good idea. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you. <laughs> um, we, 
we did this. So user pay systems um, is what we call those, um, where people opt in to purchase um, or to make contributions to a sinking fund that can be used for various different activities has a lot of value, particularly if the political environment is not supporting the protective and adaptive and sustainable measures that are needed. Um, and in areas where uh, countries may not may have resource scarcity, particularly financial resource scarcity, then these funds um, provide an opportunity to finance things like the planting of trees, the Mm -hmm. preservation of riparian zones, which is the edges along water bodies, um, and to to assist with um, the management of parks and and that kind of thing. But it's problematic. There are issues. Do you think carbon offsets should be mandatory for everyone, or is that a social social justice uh, issue? Even with the, the carbon... Yes, it could be. But again, you're marginalizing people who are not resource rich. And I think it can it can give a false sense of doing something. Moving money around does not do anything. Um, Doing things, um, physical action based, community based, real life, three dimensional things. So in other words, people who do choose carbon offsets be very. Uh, uh, and take a good look at where you're sending your money and make sure it's a credible organization. Because, yes. you know, let's say the forest company decides to clear cut the forest and then they, they want carbon offset money to, to replant, replant, which it. they should be doing anyway <laughs> by, by law and it's not contributing a net benefit. Yes, exactly. point, point well and taken. When we, I was one of the founding directors of the Caribbean Biodiversity Fund, a board, a board observer actually, because we hadn't created the institution yet. So we were in the formulation of the organization and hiring the, the executive director. And when we were working with the, the various different islands and setting up local protected area trust funds, the idea behind those trust funds was to provide a, 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 a reservoir for um, user pay programs and for money that could come from the World Bank and the Nature Conservancy and uh, the German government was involved and the Global Environment Facility. So all this money comes in in a big trust fund and uh, and then would be administered at the local level by these local trust funds. But it was very difficult to get the bylaws of these trust funds written in such a way that it, they were impenetrable to corruption, to misappropriation, and in, and in some cases even to appropriation by governments when they become cash-strapped yeah. and then want to um, dip into money uh, that might have been, um, say, obtained through a Debt for Nature swap. Yeah. Um, we're going to take a little short break now, okay. but and we will be back right after the break with Jennifer Alexis. <laughs> and uh, we'll continue talking about the types of things she's been up to. Buy Muskoka for Muskoka, your collection of Muskoka-based talk shows. Muskoka Magazine, The Bay, 88.7. I'm Dr. Shervin from Dairy Lane Dental, and you're listening to Muskoka Magazine. This is Muskoka Drawdown. Welcome back to Muskoka Drawdown. My name is Frank DeYoung, and my special guest today is Jennifer Alexis. Jennifer, um, you talk, uh, you've done a lot of work on poverty issues. Um, How does poverty dovetail with climate change, poverty alleviation, does it help climate change? Or if we get people out of poverty, they're going to buy bigger cars and bigger houses and fly around more. Is it now counterproductive to get people out of poverty? <laughs> I'm being, I'm playing the devil's playing advocate the here. <laughs> you see the smile on my face. Okay. Um, well, it is never counterproductive to 
um, provide a respite to chronic stress and trauma and struggle for any person and anybody that might stand in belief that it is better not to do that um, is incredibly selfish. And <laughs> I, no, I, I completely, I completely <laughs> I'm that. glad yeah. I, I twigged the nerve with you. And oh, yeah. It wasn't really my intention because I also am very yeah. cognizant of, of poverty of issues. And once, you know, climate change uh, needs to be conscious choices by people who are in position to make choices. It shouldn't be forced, you know, well, par- uh, carbon poverty, they call it. Or, uh, yes, it should. But, uh, you know, but we well, I started to... my journey in the 1980s, 1990s. And I think back then, making conscious consumer choices would have been one viable avenue to making a significant difference in what's going on in the world today now. However... At this stage of the game, um, if we really recognize the fact that we are in a climate emergency, um, doing a mass shift in human behavior um, uh, with systems that are not equitable is not, we need to, we do not have a conscious um, governance systems and we do yeah. not have conscious yeah. um, commercial systems and well, without that there we won't get the change that we need that's my whole that's one of my main themes in my life uh, yeah. uh, we can't we shouldn't ask people to be uh, climate uh, martyrs and, and carbon yeah. martyrs we, sh- we need systemic changes that are run by governments but in order for people to vote for governments who will do something about climate change they have to realize or they have to think that they're going to be improving their lives by by addressing climate change not by having to be martyrs and voting themselves into lives of you know cold freezing in the dark sort of yes. thing so i mean we need to we need a global approach but it has to be rooted in, in local, local and it has to be and every individual has to realize Agreed. what decisions they have to make this is a tall order of course so it, now that you've mentioned local let's bring this back to muskoka um, we have um, a very uh, poor community in Muskoka. Muskoka is a pure na- poor neighborhood. Um, even though there is a significant amount of wealth in the community, um, the year-round residents, um, particularly the ones that are supporting um, the, the seasonal residents in our community, are living in really difficult positions. And I had pulled up a couple of statistics that came from Um, a a report that was published by Muskoka Circles and the Muskoka Community Foundation. And I'm very concerned that the income level in Muskoka is 21% below the provincial average. That is is a really significant pocket of poverty that is not acknowledged. Well, not acknowledged, uh, but no one, everyone assumes everyone living in Muskoka are are multimillionaires from Toronto, or at least they are now because their houses, but that's not good. Historically, this is a very poor, one of the three poorest areas in Ontario, Mm -hmm. connected like the other two being uh, Hamilton East and uh, Victoria Halliburton Brock by uh, Lindsay, and Muskoka is one of them. So this is a a wake-up call to many people across Ontario that uh, we are not all filthy. Do you have um, a fleet? of Teslas in your driveway, electric electric (laughs) vehicles? Well, you know, I recently had to refinance my car. Um, I have just gone on to ODSP following a spinal cord injury and I needed to replace my vehicle and I want an environmentally friendly vehicle. And I would have loved to have bought one of those vehicles, but I can't. Um, I got the most um, efficient. I, I downsized. I got a smaller vehicle. It's got better mileage and it's more efficient and stuff. But the truth of the matter is, um, 
Poor people have to make unsustainable consumption choices all the time. Once you're on a very fixed income um, and, and, and living in poverty, uh, the food that you can afford is not, not only is it not good for your body, it's not good for the planet. Mm-hmm. And I find it very, it concerns me when an environment, when, when our environmental movements focus on those consumer choices, they are leaving out a significant portion of our population. We have 13% of people living in poverty in Muskoka. And as someone who's worked in community development my whole life, I can tell you that the line that gets drawn for where poverty begins and ends is so arbitrary and so um, undervalued. The poverty rate's actually a lot higher um, than the 13% that is officially measured. Mm-hmm. But uh, but that said, if, if people are not making a living wage, because most people are paid below the living wage, uh, if you're looking to make get groceries or or uh, you know purchase even things like cleaning products, you know the 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 products that have less impact on the environments that don't have surfacants that would interfere with our water bodies and the ability for fish to get oxygen from the surface of the lakes and all that kind of stuff. What, is, what the word you use? Surfacant. A, a surfacant. Well, yeah. Tell us what it's that means. It's kind of like a soap that sort of lies on the oh, top yeah. of your film that would lie on the top of wow. of, of water. So in order to get uh, access to get access to products that have a better environmental outcome or a better physical outcome you have to have the money to buy it and and the as pe- people are becoming poorer you know the people who are living on disability for example are paid 60 percent below the poverty rate yeah. so there's no choice there and we have an increasing number of people relying on the food bank and relying on salvation army and then taking what little is left to supplement with fresh food and it's a real struggle well and if you want to buy organic food it costs you double or almost triple of the regular so once again we're relegate we're this this needs to be government decisions and the tax structure has to make green products cheaper than the gray products well i think what we need to do is make unsustainable products illegal <laughs> that's i mean we i mean are we changing are we adapting do we want to survive or don't we well that's a good and question right now i think our policy and governance environment is living with a high degree of denial and i think that's really morally irresponsible because um people in in the position of governance um, and decision making have access to the information and should know better yeah, you say denial. Most, almost everyone acknowledges that climate change is happening and that yeah. it's uh, anthropocentric, that humans cause it. Not okay. I don't know what percentage we're talking about, but our 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 governments and our maybe our institutions are all basically in denial on this, and it's it's too monolithic to change. And, and like that's what I'm. I mm-hmm. I had a notion the other the other the other week that. Um, uh, India and Pakistan and Bangladesh had were up to 50 degrees last summer. Mm-hmm. If it had gone up to 60 degrees, we could end up with a billion dead people in a week. I don't think it's an if. That's not an if. No. Margaret Atwood would agree with you. She yeah. says it's not a question of when. It's it, when. It's, it's, it's when, it's not when. if. We're going to have massive... Uh, ecological collapse and 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 human deaths and nat- and and animals as well. So, like, look what we saw in Aust- in Australia: massive um, biodiversity loss. It's a desperate situation, Jennifer. How do you how do you how do you get up in the morning? <laughs> um, I believe in the ingenuity um, of the human spirit, and I think um, the planet is a very adaptive system. And uh, I think that if we recognize our relationship to the planet and see the planet as the provider of our life, the way we see our mothers, um, we have the capacity to change. And I think that the awareness level is at a 
critical level. It's where the world may be at a tipping point, I think so is our awareness level. And the reason why I say that is because these horrible disasters have serious social, you know, socioeconomic costs, environmental costs. The storm that just went through Atlantic Canada's turned into a great big heat pump and has, you know, created a big rainstorm up in the Greenland ice sheet and and brought warm water into the Arctic where we don't want it and has made matters significantly worse. So when these disasters take place, it's really hard to deny what's going on. And even even if people do not believe that climate change is an anthropocentric um, problem, and that it's not humans that have created that problem, let's just say there are some, and there is definitely science that reinforces or supports, um, you know, the hypothesis that that the hum that the, the the planet goes through has gone through cycles. Um, major changes. We know that the the uh, you know the poles were tropical spaces <laughs> once upon a time, and they're not now. But I think the really most important thing we need to do is really understand how much how much influence the corporate world has over our lives, because we are directing a lot of our energy um, regarding adapt. You know, what do we need to do? What do we need to change? Who do we need to talk to? I'd say governments. But governments are minuscule, tiny little institutions in terms of purchasing power. Money is power compared to a company. Well, so, that's, that's sort of true, but governments do have procurement and they they buy well, a lot of they stuff. Do. They do. Um, sometimes I think that it's just human nature that we're just doing almost nothing to address climate change. We have humans, our survival, our, our secret power is limited empathy. We can watch someone lie in the street and die and walk right by them. We have the capacity yes. to to inflict wars and thousands and kill thousands of people. We have limited empathy, and that's our superpower. But it's also the reason why we're not taking action when something wow. is because it's an existential threat, which means it doesn't impact me personally very much today. And you can't wake up every morning and and be obsessed with it. But that's why we have governments and courts and and and, and, and supernatural and yet, national. The, the courts only work as well as the wallet that's paying for whatever's happening in it. <laughs> exactly. Right. So yes. uh, and I I mean I, I was recently involved in a in a what I anyway thought was a tribunal process. It turned out to be a high court. It felt like a supreme court, and. Um, and you can pay for any science you want. You can you can pay for any argument you want. And and I think what what has been really unfortunate is that for the people who woke up early and started on this journey, we've been on this journey. But I when I started this journey, climate change was not real, right? It was yeah. a myth. Yeah. And people like you and me were, why can't you just get with the program and join the rest of us? Well, you know, because we know what we know. And um and I think that 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 level of denial is a is a coping mechanism now i think back then it was genuinely a belief that that the problems that we were going to face were so far into the future it wasn't going to be something we needed to deal with and um i i think that even though the yes governments and governance systems are an important tool um we need to wake up to who's actually got control on yeah. in this world yeah. and hold them accountable because those are the systems and those are the those are the stakeholders that are promoting low wages mm -hmm. that are promoting uh highly subsidized production that dump products in developing countries and undermine local production systems because they've got surplus or something didn't you know make a a, a standard in 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 a wealthier country or or a more uh, regulated market 
So, Jennifer, I really appreciate this. Um, we have like a few seconds left. I'd love to <laughs> you to read a few pages from uh, your books. I understand oh. you're an author of uh, yeah. a budding author or a published author. Tell us. I I am a published author, um, but I have not written. Um, children's books before i did one um children's book actually that's not true i did one children's book down in grenada um that was trying to introduce sustain sustainable tourism to grade four students okay. this one says um this is a book i'm about to publish um and i'm just going to read a little paragraph it goes things were bad and pink was mad about what she wasn't sure but her energy was upside down and it made her feel well grr she didn't seem to like much anymore. At least that was how it seemed. And her favorite food didn't taste so good. And it was really hard to be mean, not to be mean. And her halogen friends tried to find out what could be the matter. But Pink didn't want to reward them with their seemingly endless chatter. I'm going to leave it there because <laughs> I know I don't have time to read the whole book. But I, I, I wrote this, a series of books trying to foster social emotional learning techniques and conflict resolution skills and introducing sustainability at an elementary That's level. That's all part of dealing, dealing with climate change, isn't it? We can't have a healthy planet without healthy well, humans. If our, if our brains are operating in, in the pineal gland, in the brain stem, then we're only going to have a fright or flight. We need, we need our frontal lobes at work to solve these problems. Jennifer, can we clone you? Would you mind if we cloned you? We need more <laughs> yes, of you. Please. We need more of you on I this earth. I got a spinal cord injury, so I'll take a new body. No problem. <laughs> Thank you, Jennifer Alexis, for this great interview. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. I went to the country to escape the noise and lights. And I laid there in the pine cones all night. I woke in the morning and all the trees were gone. I got this sinking feeling. Everything felt wrong There were strip malls and dollar stores 